This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, an analyst writer for MLB.com. Joining me here is Matt Myers, national content editor for MLB.com. A few things to get to today. How baseball is already changing. We're just a month into the season and some trends we thought we saw saw are maybe reversing themselves. We're going to argue about who's the best reliever in baseball right now. Dig into some pitchers who may get traded because believe it or not, the trade deadline is in just more than a week. Wonder if the Mets are good or terrible or some combination of both. We're going to welcome in a very special guest, Emily Walden, who is a Tigers expert, prospect expert from The Athletic. It's a big week for the Tigers who have promoted Isak Paredes, Casey Mize, and Tarek Skubal. And we're going to get into a couple of guys you didn't think you knew and you should and finish off with our rants and raves. So we got a lot of stuff to get to. The first thing is it's been, I guess, just under a month of baseball and we knew the season would be weird, and it's obviously been weird in a lot of ways. And I think the first thing that freaked everybody out was the fact that offense seemed like it was dying. The low point to me was on August 10th, where everybody freaked out. Uh, Joe Sheehan tweeted that MLB teams are hitting 230, which would be an all-time low by seven points. And then Ben Lindbergh wrote at the ringer that the uh, batting average on balls in play at the time was 276 which would have been the lowest pretty much ever. And there had never even been a stretch of like 18 days, which we'd been up to that point where it was this low. So everything was dying. Offense was dead. There were so many theories, which we'll get to in a second. And it's all turned around. And over the last two weeks, offense is back. Uh, Hi, Matt. There's so many theories here. Which is your favorite? Um, I'm not sure which one's my favorite. I mean, like it's, I mean, the pictures being ahead of hitters, made a lot of sense just because if you think about like when you when you're working out you can simulate you can throw like a live bullpen session and like actually simulate like what you need to do i think better than a hitter a pitcher can simulate like in in like may and june when like nothing else is going on it's easier for a pitcher to be like okay i'm gonna um simulate what i actually need to do um whereas a hitter it's harder you can't really find you know big league caliber pitching to take batting practice against uh, in a cage. So that kind of, um, that, that made sense to me. Um, and also now, like, because of, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it's, you know, injuries because of not having enough ramp up or, you know, some some COVID stuff, like we're seeing more pitchers. Um, I think, you know, I think I heard you say this on the, the ESPN broadcast on Friday night. That <laughs> this is the, the Jason Collette thing. <laughs> there have already been more pitchers this season than there were in the entire 1998 season. Did I hear you say that correctly? <laughs> That is what I said, and I that's, that was from our friend Jason Collette, uh, and I, I went back and challenged him later to confirm it, and it's true. Like, how insane is that? So the the, the point remains, though, like, we're, like, the caliber, I think, as teams are having to turn through arms or having to, like, dip into the alternate player pool, um, and you're probably getting some lower caliber pitchers who are now pitching in games that probably wouldn't have been pitching in the majors otherwise. So the combination of those two things of hitters getting their timing back and maybe some lower caliber, shall we say, 4A pitchers 
playing a more prominent role in the season. And sure enough, um, we got, we're getting a lot more hitting. Yeah. Just to put some numbers to this, there have been five uh, partial weeks to the season so far. So, you know, the partial week at the beginning, the partial week we're in now, and then three full weeks. And here's the OPS for those weeks. The first weekend really was 706. And the week of July 27th, it was 712. And the week of August 3rd, it was 702. These are very low numbers. And then the weekend of August 10th, it was 797. And this week we're in right now, starting August 17th, 767. I was I was tempted to attribute this entirely to the Boston Red Sox pitching staff because I watched a lot of their games lately. And but I don't think it's entirely just them. Um, some of the other theories that we had, you know, a week or two ago, uh, as Matt said, pitchers ahead of hitters, sure, shifts are up by kind of a lot. Last season they were about 25%. This year we are pushing 40%. And I think a lot of people glommed right onto that. And there's probably a little bit to it, but it's not like we've never seen shifts increase before, you know, like this is not a new thing and shifts don't crush offense as much as people think they do. Um, we've seen some complaining from hitters that they can't access in-game video this year. Uh, JD Martinez has been very vocal about that. Maybe, you know, it certainly hasn't prevented guys like, you know, Corey Seager and, and Mike Yastrzemski from killing the ball, but maybe they prepare in a different way. So sure. Um, for the first time ever, fastball usage is below 50%. We are now seeing more bendy pitches than straight pitches. So there's probably something to that. But I think really, whenever you see something super weird this year, the right answer is probably 2020 is just the stupidest year on record. <laughs> and and you can attribute a lot of it to that. I do think the pitchers being ahead maybe was a little bit of it. Um, but life finds a way, right? The offense is coming back. I, I, uh I'm not sure what to expect going forward. There's been some evidence maybe that the the ball isn't flying quite as much. So if you're trying to hit everything in the air, you won't get as much love from that. So maybe, sure. Uh, but I, I'm tempted to think that, you know, the first two weeks of a season that started on July 23rd were always going to be insane for a lot of reasons. It's also, it's just, it's, it's, I'm glad for many reasons. I think it's just good to have variants, not just like, you know, we don't want, we don't necessarily want like a, uh, uh 1968 year of the pitcher type baseball but we also don't want just like you know uh uh the ball flying out left and right so it's a good to have a little variance in the season you also like it's always annoying when like these narratives take hold of like oh like you know no one can hit the game's boring so just to get like a little more offense into the game it's sort of like to just push that to the side a little bit is i think just just good for everyone's health the the other thing that's happening and uh, i was really interested to see how this would go even before the year started there's no fans in any of the ballparks obviously so there was a big question as to what would happen to home field advantage and home field advantage has never really been as big of a thing in baseball as it has been in other sports and it's been extremely consistent over the years if you go back to 1901 which was the birth of the american league ever since then home field advantage teams win about 54% of the games and Home teams, home teams, that home teams, that is. Well, home teams, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you can cut this into any time frame you want, and it's basically been the same. You know, since integration in 1947, 53.8% home winning percentage. Uh, since the 30 team era began in 1998, 53.6. Like it's always around that 53 to 54% winning percentage. Well, this year, at least as we are speaking uh, on Wednesday afternoon, it is a 506 winning percentage, just over 50-50. That is tied with 1917 for the lowest ever. And depending how things go tonight, there's 17 games today, by the way. It's possible it could be below 500, which would 
I kind of hope it does just because that's weird and chaotic and I like weird and chaotic. Um, I also think that there is just a lot to this being a small sample size fluke because when I looked at this on Monday, there had been at the time 307 games played and I got some help from our colleague, Tom Tango, who is our senior data, senior data architect. Um, we looked back last year at all 307 game stretches and there were a couple where home teams collectively were under 500, about 5% of the time. That was just last year. So it's weird. It's not unprecedented. And I'm tempted to throw it away, except for the fact there's no fans. So it feels like this is the year for it to happen, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it, it it's not, it's not, maybe the, maybe I would have expected it to go down to like 520, maybe not down to 500, but like the fact that there is some sort of like weirdness in terms of hope field advantage disappearing this year, I guess it should, I should say it's not weirdness. It makes complete sense for a variety of reasons. Yeah. So there's a couple of theories. Um, again, a fluke is always possible. That is probably the, the best place to go to. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting that since the schedule is so regionalized, the teams aren't traveling. There's no big West Coast to East Coast trips. Obviously, if you're Seattle, you still got to go to Texas. So fine. Uh, but if you're a team like Milwaukee, they're traveling just under 4,000 miles this year. And a lot of that is not even by plane. You know, if you go play the Cubs and the White Sox, it's a bus ride. And last year, and I get the season was much different length. Seattle traveled more than 46,000 miles. <laughs> That's a big deal. So maybe it's not what's hurting home teams. Maybe it's what's helping road teams, right? You get a little more rest. I could totally see that being a thing. Yeah, I've actually, I've actually been, uh, been listening to, I was listening to um, an NBA podcast, um, Zach Lowe's NBA podcast, and he was talking about, he was talking to someone about the, the NBA bubble and with players talking about just, and obviously it's not, they're in a bubble, so they're not traveling at all. But one of the reasons, like people have been surprised by the high quality of play um, after like four months off. And one of the things players have been saying is that like without travel, it's like when you finish a game and you're like, can be in your hotel within like 30 minutes of um, the, the final whistle and um, get, a, get, a, get a full night's rest every night with like no distraction. It's like, it makes a huge difference. So I think like on a smaller level, you're seeing like, you know, that at play in baseball too. Yeah, we've seen players, I can't remember who I want to say, Justin Verlander, talk about how like the best thing they do is get 10 hours of sleep a night, you know, to make them fully rested. And uh, Matt and I both have two young children, and God, that sounds just amazing right now, 10 hours of sleep a night. <laughs> One weird thing, I don't have an answer for this, I just found it weird. Um, there's a big difference between the leagues. The American League home winning percentage is 523, the National League is 488. I guess there's an argument leagues aren't a thing right now because everybody's got the DH and there's interleague play in these three divisions, West Central East, but not in between them. Um, I don't know why I really, I, I just don't know. Did you have any good thoughts on that? Cause it's confusing to me. No, that, that part actually feels a little fluky unless we just want to believe that like the AL has significantly better teams, but I'm not really sure I buy that. That, that part just feels kind of fluky to me. Yeah, on that note, I noticed today the Pirates have fewer wins than the Cardinals, who took two and a half weeks off, and um, maybe that's part of it too. I don't know. The The other thing, and this this makes a lot of sense, and I know this is going to sound like a, a dig at umpires, and it's really not intended to be. I don't think we respect how difficult a job umpires have uh, at home plate with increasing velocity and breaking pitches and all this, but there have been studies over the years that say that there is sort of like an unconscious bias towards home teams by umpires. And that's not just in baseball. You know, it's been true in other sports uh, as well because they're human and you, you've got the fans yelling and all this. Um, we've actually seen it so far in European soccer, which came back before baseball, also without fans. And 
like the Guardian wrote in June about European soccer that the uh, the road teams get 2.3 yellow cards per game with fans and only 1.9 without. You know, there, there's actually been some measurable data on this. And, you know, you can even see it just in walk rate and strikeout rate. Just look at this year, right? Home batters get a 9% walk rate, uh, 22% strikeout rate, and road batters are, you know, a little bit worse in both. Um, so what I did to try to figure that out was I looked at the edges of the strike zone, and that's where you get a, a majority of your questionable could go either way calls. And I just looked at called strike rate on takes on those, right? And so every year, back to 2008, visiting hitters were getting, you know, less favorable calls, not by a lot. We're talking like, you know, a half a percent, eight tenths of a percent, but it's been consistent every single year, except for this year. For the first time, home hitters are getting more called strikes on the edges. And it's not by a lot, right? 49.2% visiting hitters, 48.9%. But just to see that thing that had been so, so, so consistent tilt the other way, if even by a little bit, um, I can see that. I it, it matches up with studies. It matches up with other sports. I don't know that it by itself is you know, changing the outcomes of games or anything, but it seems to me fans maybe matter a little bit. Yeah, you think about it, right? It makes it makes sense, and this is sort of where people. This is like where the human element comes in. Okay, it's a it's a it's a three two count. Runners are on base, and the fans, you know, get on their feet and they're expecting a certain outcome. And like umpires, no matter how much they want to sort of like step away and just be, you know, like you know, in a in a vacuum, you can't help sometimes but get a little affected by like that like excitement and drama in the crowd. And umpires do an amazing job. Again, I'm not. This is not a knock, but like. The fact that you typically have seen this little bit difference, it makes it makes sense that maybe the fans, like the 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 noise and anticipation, would sort of affect them a little bit. And now that that element is gone, um, well, there goes like some of what had been perceived as a you know home field advantage. It, it really made me think about the playoffs as well, right? And first of all, we don't know if the playoffs are going to be in a bubble or in home fields because that seems like it's still up in the air. But either way, it's unlikely to have uh, fans there, and so. If if that's true, and you know the home the higher seed gets all three games, uh, but then home field advantage doesn't matter that much. Uh, like how much does a higher seed you know matter at all? Because in theory you'd play a worse team, but I'm not actually sure that's true. Like you know as of yesterday, I don't know if it's still true anymore, but the seven and eight seeds in the AL would have been like Tampa Bay and Houston. <laughs> you know, like that probably won't keep up because Baltimore's not going to last. But you know, I, I guess there's not much of an edge to to getting that first, second, third seed anymore. And I think that's going to be one of the, the sort of the, the narratives to watch, storylines story to watch in the last week of the season. If teams are fighting for seeding, I think you could argue that this year it is more important to line up your pitchers than it is to get the quote-unquote home games. So you might see, and some teams will view that differently, right? So you might see some teams who are like, you know what? We don't care if we're the first seed, the second seed, or the seventh or eighth seed. We know we're going to be in the playoffs, and what we want to do is make sure our pitchers are rested so we get, you know, our three three best starters um, lined up to pitch those three games. Um, other teams might say, you know, we really want to play. We like the way our team is built for our home park. We want to play at home. Or other teams might just, like, aren't built on starting pitching, so they're like, you know what, it doesn't really matter to us as long as we can get our, our number one guy pitching one of the two game, first two games, which are, like, the only two guaranteed games, then, like, it doesn't matter. So we'll just, we're just going to kind of let it see, let it, uh, let it play out. So like as, as the final, as the, we get to the final two weeks of the season, it'll be interesting to see how different teams manage their pitching staff. Um, Cause it'll tell you what they think. It'll, t- it'll give you a glimpse into what they think of like the makeup of their team and how they value home field advantage. 
Yeah, the only thing I know for sure is that final weekend is going to be a beautiful disaster in so many ways, uh, and I can't wait. All right, let's move on to our three batter minimum where we hit on three interesting topics to us. The very first one, who is the best reliever in baseball? Uh, if you think about like the big names of the last couple of years, right? Like Kenley Jansen still pretty good, but I don't think you put him near the top. Same for Aroldis Chapman. Craig Kimbrell has been kind of a disaster the last two years, so he's definitely out of the conversation. You might have said Edwin Diaz two years ago, but certainly not last year. And it seems to me, and I guess to both of us, that uh, the, the the best reliever in baseball is a title that changes so quickly. Like you can believe maybe in these like smaller sample size guys more quickly than you could elsewhere. And I know that you know what my answer is going to be, but I don't think I asked you what your answer is going to be. So I'm going to start with you. Who do you think is the best reliever in baseball? Or are you going to, are you going to steal my guy? I'm not sure. I just think that I, I love this question because as you kind of alluded to, it's like relievers are so, it's like because of the nature of the job of like, you know, you have to come in. It's just, you feel like there's more vault. There's so much more volatility, like, because, you know, guys can change, change their repertoire a little bit and suddenly get a lot better. Maybe they ditch a pitch or add a pitch and suddenly that it totally changes the, the scope of their performance. You get injuries because guys get overworked because a lot of pit managers, once a reliever is really good, they, they overuse them or maybe they've got kind of a gimmick and they get figured out. So it's sort of like, it, this is a fun question because like it, it changes all the time, right? And so I actually went and looked on fan graphs. It's just like kind of a quick and dirty way to say like, okay, who are the best relievers now, right? So I went and looked at the last two calendar years, which I thought was like, you know, granted, obviously, this is an in- incomplete season, but it basically takes us back to August 2018. So over that time, I went and looked at fielding independent pitching, um, which is just a quick and dirty way of measuring kind of, you know, it's it's on the ERA scale, but it's it takes away sort of the the luck element, so to speak, batting average on balls in play and focuses on strikeouts and walks, the things that are in a pitcher's control. So I figured, okay, at least if we start there, last two calendar years, it'll give us like a good short list of like the most dominant relievers in that time, right? So the top five is Liam Hendricks of the A's, um, Kirby Yates of the Padres, Nick Anderson of the Rays, Ryan Presley of the uh, Astros, and Ken Giles of the Blue Jays, right? So you look at that list and you have um, Hendricks has been dominant this year, still dominant, and Anderson has been dominant this year. Um, Yates is hurt, could be out for the year. Um, Ryan Presley has just been not very good and hasn't been very good since like the middle of last year, but was really dominant at the end of 18 and beginning of 19. And Ken Giles is hurt. So like when you look at it that way, it's like, you know, Josh Hader is actually 21st on this list because he gave up a lot of homers last year. And Josh Hader, I think, is probably the name that comes up to people's mind. So it's like when I'm looking at this list. I'm like, is it really just a discussion between Liam Hendricks and, and Nick Anderson, which is like kind of wild. I don't think most most um, baseball fans would, would, uh, would, would look at it that way necessarily. But when you kind of like drill it down to the, um, the, the, the objective data, there's this compelling case that like, if you go on track record and current dominance, they're the guys. You know why I like those names? Liam Hendricks was DFA'd as recently as two years ago. And Nick Anderson couldn't make the Twins 40-man roster at the beginning of last season. And now these are the guys uh, we're talking about. I am going to say it's Nick Anderson. I My love for Nick Anderson has been known for quite some time. He uh, you know, had a kind of a long and winding path. Uh, he had issues when he was drafted because he, he'd gotten into uh, like a bar fight issue and went to independent ball. And he's actually, even though he's only in his second year, he's not necessarily young. He just turned 30 uh, last month. But... In 73 and a third innings over the last two years, 123 strikeouts 
and 19 walks this year, 13 walks, excuse me, 13 strikeouts and one walk. Uh, if you look at every qualified reliever over the last two years, only hater strikes out more than he does. And it's just so much fun to watch him pitch because he only throws two pitches. Uh, he throws this very high rising fastball at the top of the zone, which he does with like pinpoint accuracy. And he's got this breaking ball, curveballish pitch that looks the same. And it's just like straight vertical. He is absolutely dominant. And he's a really good example of the way that teams are using these relievers. He has four total saves. That's it. They don't use him in the ninth inning because they don't need to. Um, he is, I guess he is the most must watch guy for me, even though you know what he's going to do. High fastballs, low breaking pitches. He is completely dominant. He's my guy. He is number one for me and kind of by a lot, which I guess is a weird thing to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he's, I think he's the right answer, which is like kind of wild to think about. Um, you know, Josh Hader, as I said, has sort of been the guy. Think about the, the Brewers bullpen right now. It's kind of like he's got competition on his own team right now. For, uh, right now, Freddie Peralta on the Brewers has a 58% strikeout rate and Devin Williams uh, has a 49% strikeout rate. And they have both been dominant this year. It's like, um, obviously their track records uh, are extremely short, but it's, um, it's pretty wild to like, we might even be in the, to think that we might be might even be in a transition where Hater isn't even the best reliever on the Brewers. Um, the other fascinating name who listeners of this podcast um, are familiar with um, or two names we've talked about a lot actually, um, who are making cases at least in the more recent track record, maybe not going back to 2018, but is uh, James Karinchak of the Indians and Drew Pomerantz of the Padres. Yeah, and uh, going back to how these guys are acquired, James Karinchak was the 282nd overall pick in 2017. And Drew Pomerantz was, I guess, just over a year ago now getting bounced from a bad San, uh, San Francisco rotation, which I guess goes to show you relievers come from the weirdest places. James Karinczak is an absolute monster. He reminds me so much of Nick Anderson because he's kind of the same guy, you know, this elite high fastball breaking pitch. Uh, he just doesn't command it as well as Anderson does. But he had... Maybe the most obscene numbers I think I'd ever seen last year across a few minor league levels. Uh, 74 strikeouts in 30 and a third innings. That is 22 strikeouts per nine. I'm no expert, but that's pretty good. This year, uh, across the majors, uh, 12 and two-thirds innings, one earned run, 24 strikeouts. There is a, a stat cast metric called expected weight on base. It basically looks at strikeouts and walks, but also the quality of contact. Like, how hard are you getting hit? What's the launch angle on all of it? And... If you were to look at every guy who's faced at least 20 batters this year, number one, James Karinczak, number two, Trevor Bauer, and look who's three and four, Drew Pomerantz and Nick Anderson. Um, that metric is not the end-all be-all, but it tells you a little bit about everything. Karinczak is, he's uncomfortable to watch. Like <laughs> I, when I watch, he's got this over-the-top motion. It makes me uncomfortable sitting here in my basement. I cannot imagine what it's like to stand in the box against that guy. It's a little herky-jerky. Also, the other thing I love about James Karinczak is he's an in Cleveland Indians reliever who wears number 99, which I, yes. I have not checked as they seem to be an homage to Rick uh, Wilding Vaughn from the, the Major League Film franchise. But I think that's awesome. It takes some real kind of guts to come in and be like, I'm a reliever for the Indians and I'm going to wear number 99. But um, it had to be him too, right? Because this was a guy in AAA last year. He walked like seven per nine. You know, like if, I don't know, Oliver Perez was wearing that. No, that's, that's not okay. You know, Adam Simber. No, it's gotta be this guy. He he's like a, he's like a dream for like, if you're like for like the pitching ninja and like MLB pipeline, cause he's still a rookie. So he's getting a lot of love on MLB pipeline, social media accounts. Like he just makes hitters look foolish with this like 
curveball that, that freezes people because it's a nasty curveball. He's a little herky-jerky. And then over the arm, over the top arm angle, just people just aren't used to seeing pitchers throw like him. Uh, the other guy who's been dominant, and we'll do him quickly because I think we talked about him a couple weeks ago, Drew Pomerantz, uh, had an ERA over six for the Red Sox as a starter in 2018, had an ERA near six for the Giants as a starter last year. And since converting to the bullpen over the last uh, year-ish, has a 143 ERA for three different teams. Uh, he signed that four-year deal with the Padres over the winter. That definitely raised a few eyes because this guy had been pretty ineffective. Uh, now, he in the bullpen, nine scoreless innings this year, one hit, 12 strikeouts, and three walks. If you were to look at every pitcher who faced at least 125 guys as a reliever over the last two seasons, so that's nearly 300 pitchers, his 137 average against is the best. His 45% strikeout rate is the second best, only to Josh Hader. And the 192 weighted on base is the best. And it's not necessarily difficult to see what happened. I, I kind of tweeted about this earlier. As a starter, he threw five pitches. Three of them were bad. He doesn't throw them anymore. That helps. On the fastball and curve, he has elite movement on both of them. And the velocity has ticked up. Throw your best pitches. Make them better. Stop throwing your crappy pitches. It shouldn't be that simple. Um, but I guess it is. I am all in on Drew Pomerantz. Big fan of Drew Pomerantz. I guess the other guys, uh, you, know, you kind of mentioned like Liam Hendricks. I don't want to gloss over him. He's he's really good. I just, I don't know. I kind of put him like a step below these guys. Don't you think? He doesn't feel like he has that like sort of like um, the same kind of dominic, dom- like dominance um, that these other guys do. Even if, even if he's been as effective, he doesn't, he, I feel like he doesn't have the... Um, um, and this is a little, I'll admit this is like just kind of subjective because he's been so good um, for the last two years, but there's just something he doesn't feel. It's, it's a little bit of a, an intangible factor. It doesn't feel quite a dominant, but he's, he's, he's in the, to be very clear, he is in the conversation because he's uh, two straight years of just like complete dominance um, as, as a reliever. Um, why don't we switch to talking about starting pitchers? Because you mentioned this in the beginning, you said, Trade deadline is now, what, 12 days away as we record this? It is uh, 4 p.m. on Eastern Time on August 31st. And that is coming up quick. And teams are going to need to decide pretty quickly if they're going to make make trades. And I think that there's uh, Anthony Kasterman had a piece on Olivia.com today looking at starting pitchers who could get traded. And they may not be the best names, but they are certainly some interesting names. Yeah, I I, just as like a general rule, I think we're going to see a quiet trade deadline because the expanded playoffs mean that there's so many teams within shouting distance. I think some teams will have some hesitation about asking guys to move across the country in the midst of the pandemic, but you're obviously going to see a, a few. The one name that stood out to me, which I think is kind of funny, is uh, Dylan Bundy because he's been pretty unimpressive for his entire career in Baltimore, except now with the Angels, he's been awesome. But it's only been four games, right? So it's like, do you buy into four very good games? And do you think the Angels will sell him? Now, the Angels are an incredible disappointment. They are 8-16, and 16, despite having literally Mike Trout and Anthony, adding Anthony Rendon. The thing about Bundy, though, is they are going to have the exact same problems next year, and he is not a free agent until after next year. So I, I think that will require a team to pay a lot for a guy who has had four good starts, right? I mean, the Angels will still need a pitcher next year. I kind of think he's going to stay put, although I think he's a really good name uh, to think about there. Some other names that Anthony came up with, Nathan Avaldi, talk about a team that cannot afford to trade away any pitching, the Boston Red Sox. Uh, but maybe, you know, he's always been an interesting guy. The, the names I really thought were interesting on this list, two guys from Texas. So Mike Miner and Lance Lynn. Boy, was I wrong when I uh, was critical of giving Lance Lynn three years because he has been awesome. He has been absolutely 
fantastic. He's in the Cy Young conversation again this year. Uh, he has signed through 2021. Mike Miner is a free agent after this year, but his fastball velocity is down like two ticks, and his ERA is near seven. The Rangers are not very good. Do you do you think they would actually trade one of those guys? I think it's an interesting. Quite, I do think that you know you talked about you know trade making people move across country during during a pandemic is weird, which I think is going to mitigate trades. I also think that one of the factors is right, like you know there's going to be that kind of uneasiness of well, if I trade for you, are you then going to just like you know elect not to play? You, you can essentially opt out of the season, right? You can say I'm not I'm, I'm not comfortable, you know. So there's that risk. You must need to take a player at his, at their word. If you say I'm going to trade for you, are you going to play for us? Um, that's why it's like you know on one hand you think that maybe. The, the rent the players would be more willing to say, I'm going to play because they're going to be free agents. And they want to like keep playing and like build up their case. At the same time, I feel like psychologically, a player who knows he's going to be on the team for more than a year might be more willing to kind of be like, okay, I, I'm I'm here for it. So um, Lance Lynn is a name I think is really intriguing because he's under contract through next year. So he's someone that maybe the Rangers could actually get something for. Um, you know, it's not, like Miner wouldn't bring you much. That's the thing. So it's sort of like, well, what's, his velocity is down and he's a free agent. Of course, the Rangers are, you know, every team's kind of in it. They're, they're, they're 10 and 12. It's part, you know, that's basically like on the cusp of the playoff race. So it's like, are they really going to give, give up, you know, essentially. So that's, that's, um, that's, that's a tricky one. What, I mean, Marco Gonzalez is another name that, that Anthony mentioned, who's interesting. He's not dominant, but like the Mariners aren't really going anywhere. Um, Jerry Depoto loves to make trades. He's under contract through, what through 2024 with the uh, 25 team option. So he's a name that that's, that's pretty interesting to me. Um, Jerry DePoto was actually on MLB network radio over the weekend. And he's, he hypothesized and maybe this was him tipping his hand basically said, I think that the trades we're going to see are going to see eight, like not what you're used to at trade deadline. It's going to be like young, young cost control players changing hands because they can help another team's weakness. So you might see like, Marco Gonzalez go to a team because like the, the Mariners might say, Oh, we want a young, you know, shortstop and a team need, has a shortstop, uh, you know, surplus. And there's like, okay, like, you know, we'll take our, you know, we'll give you Mark Gonzalez. Who's a, a solid, you know, number three, number four starter under control through 2024. If you can give us a, a decent young, young shortstop, that kind of thing. So um, maybe, you know, DePoto has a sense of where things are, where these talks are going. So that'd be interesting to see. Um, most likely it's probably just going to be a lot of relievers as it is. <laughs> yeah. The other name mentioned was Alex Cobb. Um, I actually don't think the Orioles want to trade right now because they're a game over 500, believe it or not. One name that wasn't mentioned or, or two names really is if you look at the kind of bottom feeding teams, do they have much to sell? Not really. But if you look at the Giants, uh, Johnny Cueto and Kevin Gausman have both been you know, reasonably good. You know, and that team's not going anywhere. So I could see those guys being traded. But I think you're right. I think a lot of relievers and I just I mean, it's going to be a weird deadline for sure. But I feel like it's going to be kind of quiet. The one thing that one thing to keep in mind is that teams can only trade guys who are in their player pool, either the alternate site or the main site. So you might keep an eye on teams that start adding some teams have started adding prospects to their player pool. And they could argue, well, we just want to give them good development time against higher quality composition. There's also like, well, it also means they're, they're eligible to be traded. So if you see teams adding guys to their alternate player pool, you might, you might, that might be, they might be tipping their hand of like, maybe not saying they're going to trade those guys, but like they're willing to entertain offers for those guys. Fair enough. Here is our, our third question. What are the Mets? I know that's always a question. Um, they are three games under 500 and three games out. And they are, they are kind of a confusing team. Like is Edwin Diaz good again? A 48% strikeout rate. 
uh, suddenly Robinson Cano is mashing. Uh, if you listen to Mets fans and broadcasters, I think there's a lot of consternation about how they are uh, performing in high leverage situations. So, like the offense is pretty good. They have a 356 on base percentage, which is very good. They are tied with the Phillies for the second best weighted runs created plus in baseball behind the Yankees. Like it's good. Pete Alonso still good. JD Davis has been awesome. I don't think enough people understand how good JD Davis has been. If you look at everybody who's had 500 plate appearances over the last two years, he's tied for 20th. He's hit as well as Xander Bogarts, a little better than Jeff McNeil. We love JD Davis around here, but in high leverage situations, they are 25th. Uh, McNeil, Cano, Conforto are a combined three for 31. I know that that drives fans nuts, but it's been well proven that's not indicative of literally anything. It's unfortunate. It's bad luck. It doesn't matter. It's not going to change anything going forward. I would rather have this situation where they've been productive overall and not in big spots than vice versa, because I, I think I feel better about this going forward. Yeah, they're kind of like the opposite of the Orioles. Like the Orioles are sort of surprising people. But like if you look at the Orioles, they're like number two in the majors in weighted runs created plus in high leverage situations. So it tells you a lot about like the sequencing that's going on. Like the the Orioles are getting optimal sequencing and the Mets are getting uh, well below well below average sequencing. But most likely, considering how deep their lineup is, um, that will probably um, even even itself out. And, you know, the, you, two guys I want to talk about is um, because they were sort of like the big story of the Mets last year is that is Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano, right? The Mets brought them over prior to the 2019 season and that big, very, I would say maybe, I don't know if controversial is the right word, um, disputed, discussed um, uh, trade with the Mariners where they gave up um, Jared Kalanick, you know, at the time, one of their top two prospects and now one of the top, you know, 10 or 15 prospects in the game, as well as Justin Dunn, another very good pitching prospect. Um, And of course they took on a lot of money on the Cano contract. The idea, you know, was very much like a win now trade. We can get a, a dominant young reliever and, we believe Cano can still hit. And of course, last year, um, Cano was terrible in the early going. He had a bunch of injuries and um, looked like he was toast. And Edwin Diaz had just one of the weirdest seasons in maybe in baseball history where he was still striking out hitters at an elite rate among the best in baseball, but also just like giving up homers like left and right. And it was just, it was just really hard to explain. And now this year, they both kind of look like the players the Mets thought they were trading for. Um, Diaz is striking out 48% of hitters. Um, he has a 1.86 uh, fielding independent pitching, um, which um, is on the ERA scale. So as I mentioned earlier, so that obviously is very good. And Robinson Cano, basically since coming off the DL last year, um, I just went by last calendar year and he came off the DL in early August, so it's about right. Last calendar year, he's hitting 331, 391, 579. Um, and it's not a fluke if you go by expected weight on base in that time, which is, you know, quality of contact, um, you know, and put on the, the on base scale. So um, of all the players, the minimum of hundred plate appearances in that time, his expected weight on base ranks ten, ranks 10th in all of baseball. Um, and it's the best on the team. So uh, at 409. So it's maybe a little later than the Mets thought, but like, it's actually the trade is, I don't want to say paying off, you know, but I feel like everyone always views trades as a zero sum. And I don't think this is ever going to be looked, we looked back on necessarily as a good trade for the Mets, unless they won a world series in the next two years. But like, at least now they get to say, okay, the guys we traded for are playing like the guys we thought we were getting. Uh, two quick things on the Mets before we let them go. We have to point out that Dominic Smith has been awesome. Uh, hitting 311, 397, 738. They really have not lost much, if anything, by UNSS, but opting out because it's giving Smith more time to play. And I have to admit, I haven't watched a ton of Mets games this year, but just by like, 
the general tone around the team, it seems like Ahmed Rosario is a massive disappointment and he's not off to a good start, but that Andres Jimenez has been fantastic. And I'm looking at the numbers now. Andres Jimenez has a 290 on base and a 339 slugging, and he's been 25% below average. I know he's a good defender, but I don't quite get that. Um, he, he's, he's, very, he's very smooth. He's, he's actually, I think he's stolen a bunch of bases and he just like, he, he feels like a very, um, he is a, uh, I think he is as someone who's watched a lot of Mets over the years. Um, I, he's certainly being, I think probably a little overrated this far, especially since he doesn't really have much, doesn't hit the ball with much authority, but he has a, a headiness to his game. He's a very aware player, makes a lot of smart plays. He feels like the kind of guy the Mets have lacked. Um, just someone who's like, Oh, this guy does a lot of the little things in a way that like they generally have not done a good job of. So I think there's just a little, there's a little bit of like breath of fresh air. of like, Oh, this guy's a really good defender at three positions and he steals bases and he takes extra bases. And like, you know, it's just, I think that's part of the, um, the, uh, the dynamic there. Fair enough. I'm still in on a Rosario, by the way. It's only 24 years old. He had an absolute uh, missile last night. That's for sure. It, he certainly did. All right. Let's bring in our guest. Um, last night, actually, I spoke to Emily Walden, who is a prospect expert. Her work has been seen at The Athletic, and she focuses on the Tigers. And it's been a big week for the Tigers, who have called up a bunch of their top prospects. So we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Emily Walden. This has probably been the most exciting week in Detroit Tigers baseball in about five years, I think. Uh, We had actually talked on a previous episode of the show about how the Tigers offense has the best hard hit rate in baseball, and that's still true. Unfortunately, their 555 ERA is fourth worst in baseball. Their 19% strikeout rate is dead last. So they have made some pretty major moves. Uh, They called up former number one overall pick Casey Mize. They called up Tarek Skubal. And they called up Isak Paredes, a third baseman. And those are three pretty big prospect names. And we were very fortunate to have with us to talk about all of it. Emily Walden, a prospect writer for the Athletics MLB site. And Emily, a brief apology, I guess, because when I asked you to do this, I didn't realize it was going to be like right as Scooble was finishing up his major league debut. Uh, So sorry for taking away from Tarek Tuesday, but thank you for for joining us. I know it must have been a pretty exciting week for anyone who's followed the Tigers prospects. Oh, it absolutely was. And it's I have to give you props because you are one of the few that pronounced Tarek's name correctly right off the bat. So wanted to congratulate you on that. But yeah, for anybody who's followed the Tigers system for any period of time, this was a huge week especially for an organization that's been so desperate to see some big names come through. I'm going to throw that credit right back at you, actually, because I have a, a Word document here with some notes and questions for you. And on it is a screenshot of a tweet from you from yesterday that says, because I know this is going to be brutal, Derek with a T, Scooble. And that is what I've heard in my head every time I've done it. So that's actually all on you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Well, and it's funny, I'm sure there's people probably laughing because they know I'm such a purist when it comes to proper name pronunciation. And that was one of the first questions I asked Tarek when I spoke with him for the first time. I said, how how much have you had to like correct people and tell people this is how you actually say my name? And Tarek, who is one of the most low-key, just down-to-earth, easygoing guys, he just kind of laughed and shrugged. He goes, you know, I've stopped trying. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's start with the the decision. Were you surprised that they all came up together? Like it felt like to me, Mize was probably inevitable at some point. Um, but for Al Avila to kind of announce all three of them at the exact same time, at least from my perspective, was pretty surprising. Yeah, I would say the way that they announced those three at the same time, that was a little bit surprising. Um, I think out of those three, I personally expected um, Paredes to be one of the first ones just because he had had so much success at the plate when he was with double a Erie, he showed so much power. He's such a smart hitter and a really solid defender. Um, obviously came over in that Cubs trade along with uh, Jamer Candelario um, for Alex Avila and Justin Wilson exchange with the Cubs really has moved well. And for the Tigers farm system, that speaks volumes because there's been such a lack of depth with position players. So to have two key guys like that come over and be fairly quick at moving through the organization, I think that was a really smart, smart thing for the Tigers to do. And it definitely worked in their favor. How much of this do you think was just deciding they were ready now versus there's no minor leagues to put them in versus uh, the expanded playoffs gives this team a shot after they've been pretty non-competitive for the last three or four years? I don't know if I'm allowed to answer yes. <laughs> <laughs> just yes. Overall, just, just yes. yes. Yeah, and I, I think that you could probably agree with me too with all of the, just the odd circumstances that 2020 has tossed, not only all of us in our own personal lives, but with sports in general. I mean, you look at the different challenges that this has created for organizations across the board. It's raised the concern for injuries because of the compact um, time for players to sort of stay in shape. Um, it's basically blown up any type of plan that the players or the teams had for player development. And so they've had to get creative. They've had to go, you know, in a perfect world, we would move this guy at this pace and we would move this guy at this pace. And unfortunately, 2020 had other plans. And so for guys like Casey Mize, for Scooble, for Paredes, I think in another situation, it may have been a bit longer before we saw these guys come up. But as we all have seen this year, it's not anything but normal. And so it's really not that surprising in regards to these moves being made. I believe two of them, uh, I know Scooble and I believe Paredes as, as well, uh, actually had to overcome uh, the virus earlier this year. Is that right? That That's correct. And that's actually going back to um, the original discussion about who we thought would get called up. I personally thought we'd see a guy like Matt Manning before Scooble purely because Scooble was coming out of getting through COVID-19. And so that kind of pulled into question, is he physically able? Is he in a good place to be able to handle that type of stamina? And from the, what the Tigers have shown, it looked like they had enough good faith in him to say, you know, I think he's in a good place. So let's go ahead and pull him up. Well, yeah, let's actually jump ahead for a second because I was going to ask. Uh, they have three very good pitching prospects. Uh, they have Mize and they have Scooble, and then also, as you mentioned, Matt Manning. And I can't remember which list it was, uh, you know, Fangraphs or Keith Law or somebody. Somebody had Manning rated atop all three of them last year. And I was sort of surprised that he hasn't gotten the call yet. What is, what is the delay on his end? Yeah, and actually, I will label myself as one of those people who moved Manning to the top of my list as well, just with that, the Tigers organization. 
I think for him, there's still a few little things that the organization is trying to fine tune. Um, obviously, he's got a very, very solid fastball. Um, he is somebody who, in my opinion, has fared quite well in regards to health. Um, obviously, Casey Mize had some concerns last year. Uh, Tarek Skubal did well, especially considering his history with Tommy John from back when he was in college. Um, but with Manning, I think that there are a little bit more concerns with his off-speed stuff that he has made great strides in overall. His curveball specifically has made really good strides. But I think what they're wanting to do is take the progress that they've seen and be able to sort of shape it into a profile where they go, all right, he's solid, he's ready. And one of the challenges is that you look at Mize and Scooball, they're both college arms. Matt Manning came out of a high school background. And so I think while he has as solid a profile as any, that does create a bit more time to have to focus on development. Whereas with Scooball and Mice, they had that college platform. They had that college experience. And I think that adds a little bit more maturity as far as dealing with situational awareness. You talked, uh, I guess, before the entire world shut down, you talked to Scooball back in the original spring training for a, a big feature at The Athletic. And I, I thought it was really cool because in addition to like, detailing all of his pitches, you actually got him to give you pitch grip pictures for each and every one, which is, is just kind of like a nice touch to really see like how he does everything. And he just, he seems like a, a, a good dude, right? Like someone who's easy to talk to and happy to be there. Oh, he's, he's so genuine. And I think he's somebody who is not only going to endear himself to the fans because of a very effective pitch mix, but he is somebody who is extremely genuine. What you see is what you get with him. Um, he's the type of person that says, you know what? I'm here. I'm a team player. I'm going to be a great locker room guy. And he's come out and shown how effective his pitch mix can be. And I think a key for him is that he really didn't make any major changes. Um, that It was funny. My editor put together the headline for that article, and she said the evolution of Tarek Skubal. It's really, that's what it's been. It's been a subtle little thing where it's like these little changes sort of come to be with what he already knows in himself. And there's a very quiet confidence in how Scooble works. He's sort of gotten to know like where his strengths lie. He's learned how to complement those strengths while he works on getting his other stuff a little bit stronger as well. And I think when you have that quiet confidence, you can be a little bit more deceptive against opposing hitters and show what you're really capable of. And I know when he made his way through the Eastern League last year, the numbers were just, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but just ungodly. I mean, the way that <laughs> the way that he just powered through, I think he ended up with about 17.4 strikeouts per nine innings, something along those lines. And it just blew Eastern League teams out of the water. They saw his stuff and went, there is something really, really special about this kid. Yeah, in AA last year, 82 strikeouts in 42 innings, which is just an obscene number. Um, as we're recording this, it's, what, the third inning, I guess, of the Tigers game, and he lasted the first two. Uh, the numbers weren't great. You know, leadoff home run to Tim Anderson and seven hits allowed, but the White Sox offense is sneakily really good, so uh, no disrespect there. I thought it was interesting, you know, for those who don't know him, he is the number 50 overall prospect in baseball at MLB Pipeline. Um, but he was not a top pick. He was a ninth rounder and just kind of going off of what you'd written as a freshman throwing like 87 as a sophomore, he bled his elbow and had Tommy John. And then as a junior, he walked six per nine. Uh, so that's a pretty big progression. And what I also found interesting was he told you that he spent a week at driveline working on his curveball. He referenced the technology and it just struck me like how normal that is now, you know, like 
three years ago, maybe that was just a big weird thing that only Trevor Bauer did. And now it's just like, oh yeah, I did that. I know my spin efficiency. I know my spin axis. I mean, you talk to a lot of minor league players. It's just sort of what you do now, right? It is. It definitely is. We call it the revolution of Kyle Bodie, who is the <laughs> right. the the mastermind behind driveline baseball. And he, along with another prospect with the Rays, Shane Boz, is somebody who has really started to be more vocal about how much these minor league players are going, okay, I've got two options here. I can become more open to studying this data, being able to, you know, sort of see how how can I really build off of this? What are some areas that can really make me more effective? Because I think even though these guys are still very young, they're getting a very early look at how incredibly brutal baseball is. Not only are you pushing to get to the majors, you also have to fight equally, if not harder, to hold a spot in the majors. And so all of these guys are in a position where they say, you know what, if I'm going to really, really stick here, I have to know my body, I have to know what pitches are working, what pitches aren't. And I really have to show that I can stay a step ahead. Because with a guy like Scooble, he may not have necessarily the most bite to his pitch mix. Whereas with a guy like Casey Mize, having the splitter that he throws so, so well, that was something that really stood out as far as his pitching profile. With Scooble, it's more deception, I think, than actual bite to his pitches. But I think if you look at the the overall profile, you can see that it can be equally as effective because you're keeping hitters off balance. You're really able to stay one step ahead of them unless they're Tim Anderson, which we all saw tonight. Um, but with that, it's just a matter of showing I know my body I know how I'm able to be the most effective, and that's how I'm really pushing my way forward. So from our perspective, uh, Casey Mize will make his Major League debut tomorrow. I think by the time people listen to this, he may be pitching or have already pitched. He was the number one overall pick in the 2018 draft, just ahead of Joey Bart, who is highly regarded, Alec Baum, who just came up, Nick Madrigal, who was up earlier in the year, and he just dominated the minors. He threw a no-hitter in his double-A debut. And it sounded like maybe he could have gotten up last year, but then he had some arm troubles that really uh, set him back. But just rehab, right? No surgery or anything to resolve that? Correct. Yep. It was just more of a precaution from the Tigers. They obviously invested a great deal into him, taking him at 1-1. And with the precaution, I think it was a good move. They, They sort of cut him back, made him take some rest. And I think that paid off in the long term because we got to see a bit more effective stuff from him. And the fact that he is 23 now, um, they didn't really want to mess with what his future could look like. Obviously, that is an arm that you really build your organization around, along with guys like Manning, Scooball, Alex Fiedo, um, and a few other arms that they have working on. It's, it's a guy you want to protect. And I think they did a very good job with Mize in that regard. Back to Paredes for a minute, as you mentioned They got him from the Cubs in the uh, Candelario deal for Wilson. And as the Tigers have gone through this rebuild over the past couple years, one thing that has struck me is that the the trades they've made where they're sending away their veterans haven't really paid off that well. Cespedes for Michael Fulmer looked pretty good until he got hurt, sure. But they really have received very little from trading away Justin Verlander, J.D. Martinez, Justin Upton. Uh, Obviously, it's been too soon to say for Nick Castellanos, but it hasn't really worked out that well. Do you think Paredes is maybe the best bet to produce based on all those guys they sent away? You know, I, I still toss this around in my head because we occasionally will have talks amongst the Tigers fan base and I'll try and kind of gauge what people think. And whenever I ask, which trade did you feel was the most effective? Because they all, correct me if I'm wrong, 
they all, I believe, happened in 2017. I think that's when all the major Justin Verlander, Martinez, Upton, Kinsler was another one um, that they all made those transitions with. And so looking back 2017 up until now, the most common consensus is that that trade for Justin Wilson and Alex Avila, apologies to Cubs fans, I think that that really did come out in the most favor for the Tigers because you had those two players who, while Candelario is still still sort of discovering his identity, I think, at the major league level. We've seen glimpses of really good defensive work here and there, but then you also see some second guessing, you see some defensive missteps, and then you also see very kind of splashy offensive production as well. So it's almost like he's still kind of trying to figure out who he is. I think the tools are there, but it's just a matter of if he can put those together. But Paredes has been almost seamless. I think the only real adjustment that you're going to see from him is where they put him defensively. Um, he worked a lot at shortstop at the lower minor league levels, but because of how much his body is filled out, a lot of talk among scouts, as well as my personal belief, I think you're looking at first or third base for him in the future defensively. Since you brought up uh, defensive positioning, the Tigers had the number one overall pick this year as well, and they drafted Spencer Torkelson and announced him as a third baseman, but he's not really going to play third base, is he? No, I, I don't think he is. Um, I think what the Tigers are sort of coming into now is, for the first time in a long time, they have some infield options. They really were struggling with that for a long time. They had more than enough outfielders. They were doing really well on the pitching front, but infielders were always sort of a challenge. And so now with the types of guys that they have to work with, I think that that could shift for Torkelson, but I think it's really going to depend on who shows the ability to really stick in the infield and be able to also produce offensively. Um, and I think they have a few different guys that they're going to have to kind of feel out and see what that's going to look like moving forward. Do you think it's possible that next year, let's assume we have a regular regular season, right? That the opening day or opening week starting rotation for the Tigers is Mize, Manning, Scooble, Spencer Turnbull, who's been pretty good, and you know, insert number five here. And, and if so, that's potentially really good. I, I think that that is really good. I will say um, Spencer Turnbull has been a very pleasant surprise um, after watching him work his way up through the system. I saw him all the way from the bottom working his way up, and he is he's really matured as a full profile. Um, I think he's really kind of come into his own, and watching him produce has been really, really fun. Um, and with those other arms coming on board, I think the most intriguing part is really going to see what they do with the bullpen, because you have guys like Gregory Soto, you have guys like Alex Baeta who are still kind of question marks. You have Anthony Castro, who obviously made his major league debut this year. There's a number of guys where I think they're going to have to start to decide who are we going to stick in more of a relief role and who are we going to let fight for one of those rotation positions. And it's really a nice problem to have for Detroit. It's definitely not a problem that they've had for a while. So I think they're enjoying the challenge of figuring out where to put these guys. Before I let you go, I want to touch on something that you did that I thought was really cool. When the season kind of fell apart uh, in March, and then obviously the minor league season never really got going at all, you tried to connect minor leaguers who, who needed the extra help with, uh, with some employment opportunities. And it sounds like you were able to do that for, what, a couple dozen guys? I, I was. And it's it's funny because for anybody who knows me knows that I tend to try and jump out and save the world and then realize I've probably bit off more than I could chew. And this was definitely one of those situations um, where I was able to, yes, get, get players in contact with employers. 
Um, I didn't get a final count, but it was somewhere around 40 to 50 players who were able to get jobs out of that. And then we ended up um, connecting fans who wanted to financially support the players too. Um, and it was just direct donations from fans to players raised over $14,000 in support of these guys who needed the funds for, for them, for their families, for living expenses. And it, it just really showed you, I think, at one of the darkest points in the year with everyone still dealing with the, the blow of COVID that you could see the best really in a lot of people. And it was, it was something that was very humbling to be a part of. Um, and I'm really glad I was able to see that get played out the way it did. That is really, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, a tough time, obviously, for all minor leaguers. And an enormous amount of credit to you for that. The last question I want to ask you, well, first, a, a small question. You started following or writing about the Tigers farm system in 2015. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. I think anyone would agree that the Tigers farm system has improved steadily since then. And that maybe 2015 wasn't the strongest. I have the 2015 Tigers top 10 prospect list in front of me. How many of the guys do you remember from that list? This is the unfair oh, question goodness. I warned you about. <laughs> this is so unfair. Um, you know, I really, I don't know how many I could actually pull off the top of my head, to be completely honest. I, I was like, I could cheat and I could Google it. But no, I, I honestly, I would love to hear it because I did a little bit of a, a tweet feature on that some time ago. And the changes have been astronomical <laughs> yeah I, I i warned you beforehand this was an unfair question and it, it, it was number one was michael fulmer so at least at least he turned out number two was Stephen moya uh an outfielder number three Derek hill who i i think is there he was making great catches this spring training if i'm remembering correctly correct yes uh number four bo burrows who i don't know what happened to him and number five spencer turnbull so there's there's at least two good pitchers right there yes um the the, uh, so the next two guys I can honestly say I've never heard of, and I'm, I'm sure you know more about them than I do. Number six was Kevin Ziomik, and number mm-hmm. s- oh, six, excuse me, and number seven, Austin Kubica. Yes, those are um, two arms that have faded into the, the great oblivion known as minor leaguers who did not make it. But Kevin, Kevin Ziomik, he was one who I believe he came out of Vanderbilt, originally ran into some injuries. Um, Austin Kabetza came out of Rice University, had had some good stuff there for a little bit, unfortunately faded out as well. And that man, that top 10, that is a flash from the past. I tell you what. <laughs> I, I love that I'm naming like flamed out prospects from five years ago and you immediately got scouting reports on it, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I guess goes to show, you know more about the Tigers farm system and uh, much of the minor leagues uh, than pretty much anybody I know. Which it's, I, I think yeah. Is. Yeah. It's, it's definitely been the, uh, a ride that I really, you know, just kind of begin to describe to people how much fun it's been and seeing guys like Bill Burroughs who got a chance to get a look this year, um, make his debut, Kyle Funkhauser, another one. Grace and Griner. It's like I could go through this entire list of being able to appreciate watching these guys start from square one. You see the challenges, you see the injuries, you see the struggles that they go through. And it makes these major league major league debuts pretty special. I told somebody that the other day where I said, Yes, I'm an unbiased profiler of players, but I will sit there and I will occasionally get teared up because I think you just get a bigger appreciation for knowing what they went through to get to where they are. And I think that's one of the beauties of minor league baseball. That is really cool. I uh, I can say I've learned a great deal from following you, which everybody should. Emily C. Walden, that's an O-N, uh, on Twitter. Emily, really, thank you so much for your time. 
Absolutely. It's a pleasure talking to you. We are back on our thanks to Emily. Uh, each week, Matt and I focus on one under-the-radar guy you may not know about. If you've been listening to the show for the last couple of weeks, you know that Matt always gives me a hard time because he thinks I'm going to pick some random reliever who will inevitably flame out. And I've tried not to do that. I have tried to focus on position players, except this time I am going to go with the reliever because he's been so good and so unexpected. I wonder how many people would know what team Ryan Barucki even plays on. The answer is the Toronto Blue Jays in 2018 and 19 as a starting pitcher, 431 ERA, 16% strikeout, fastball about 91. It was fine. He was fine. This year, he actually lost the number five starter job out of camp to Anthony Kay and didn't even make the opening day roster. He came up a couple days later when Ken Giles was hurt. Well, let me tell you about Ryan Barucki as a reliever, and I get it, six and a third, fourless innings. It's not a lot, but still. 54% strikeout rate. I did say 16% as a starter, 54%. You can't do that by accident, even if it's a small sample. His fastball is up to almost 95. He has also changed his pitch mix as a starting pitcher. He used four pitches, a fastball, slider, and curveball. That slider was there only 10% of the time. Now he's becoming like baby Andrew Miller. Uh, he's using that slider 40% of the time, and it's really good. We had on Keegan Matheson last week to talk about the Blue Jays. And quietly, the bullpen's kind of fun. Like Jordan Romano's been pretty good. Barucki's been awesome. Um, it's it's an interesting team, you know, and uh, Ryan Barucki, is he the next Andrew Miller? Probably not, but I don't know how you get to me uh, striking this many guys out, you know, sort of by accident here. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to make of him. I'll admit I have not watched him yet. I've just heard you talking about him the last couple of days, so I have to make a, give myself a uh, an opportunity to uh, to go to go catch myself some uh, Ryan Bricky because uh, this is like your classic reliever, like we we, we we I was talking about before about the volatility of relievers. Oh, change like a little bit of my drop a pitch, change my pitch mix, and suddenly it's like a new like it's like a new pitcher. All right, well who's your guy? This is a good. Uh, one. I'm ex- I'm excited for this. To be <laughs> well, you know. This year, the Padres have been one of the talks of baseball, at least the talks of this podcast. And obviously, Fernando Tatis Jr. at shortstop is getting a ton of hype. And then, of course, Eric Hosmer has been playing very well at first base um, because, you know, he's been getting the ball in the air more and hitting one more power. Looks like maybe a slightly different player. And then, obviously, they've got Manny Machado at third base, one of the biggest stars in the game. Um, Signed that big contract last year. A star-studded infield. But there's another guy in the infield who has been playing, I won't say as well as any as, as well as any of them, because no one's playing as well as Fernando Tetis Jr., but who has been playing about as well as any second baseman in the game, and certainly outplaying the other guys in that infield, and that is Jake Cronenworth, who is probably not someone most baseball fans knew coming into the season. Um, right now, he is hitting 321, 387, 607, um, and this is by no means any sort of fluke. If we looked at his stat cast expected stats, he is in the... 98th percentile in expected slugging, the 100th percentile in expected batting average, and the 99th percentile in expected weighted on base. And he's also in the 93rd percentile in sprint speed. So he is a appears to be the makings of a complete player. And the funny thing about Jake Cronenworth is that coming into the season, he was like a throw-in from the Rays in the Tommy Pham trade. It was like he was the other guy who was coming along in that big trade that was made this offseason, the Rays from the rate the Rays got from the Padres, um, Hunter outfielder Hunter Renfro and second baseman uh, Xavier Edwards, and a player to be named later, who I'm not even sure who that is, um, to be honest. 
Padres got Tommy Pham, and at the time, shortstop slash right-handed pitcher Jake Cronenworth. And the thought was that he was like kind of a, a gimmick, was that he'd been pitching. He hadn't pitched um, since 2015, and last year the Rays were like, hey, do you want to try pitching again? And he struck out um, nine over seven and a third innings at AAA uh, Durham, serving mostly as an opener and showcasing a 95-mile-an-hour uh, fastball. Um, and so the thought was he could be a two-way player. But, of course, now he has um, uh, become their everyday second baseman and is hitting like an all-star. One amazing thing about the Padres, I just saw this tweeted by James Smythe, who's a researcher for the S Network. Fernando Tatis Jr. leads the major leagues in home runs, RBIs, runs, and stolen bases. Nobody has ever done that in a full season. Ty Cobb did it in the American League in all four in 1909. Um, I know we're going to have like big asterisks on this season if anything cool happens because it's a short season. But if he does that, even over 60 games at his age, I am going to count it, right? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. That's respect. We had it. We had it. We had this. I think we, there's, been, there's been three times that a player's gone in the in 2011, the year that Matt Kemp should have won MVP. Yes. Um, he was in the top five <laughs> in those categories. In Major League Baseball, he was in the top five in those four, right? There have been three times a player has been in the top three in all in all uh, in all four of those categories. They are George Sisler, Willie Mays, and Hank Aaron. Pretty cool list. list. Those are good names. All right, let's finish this off with our purpose pitch. We each pick a subject uh, to go off on a rant on. Matt, you get to go first. Your rant is oddly positive this week. <laughs> yes, my rant is that. Baseball is insane right now. Um, you know, it started off a little slow, a little uneven with the, and when I say insane, I mean insanely good. It started off a little uneven, as we mentioned. Pitchers were again ahead of the hitters. That has changed, and we are now seeing something amazing literally every night. You know, we're recording this on a Wednesday. So, yes, just yesterday, we saw that Manny Machado catch in right field where he was shifted as the third baseman, and he went deep into the right field corner to make like an over his head catch um Kenta Maeda struck out 12 and took a no hitter into the ninth inning throwing one of the best changeups I have ever seen on Monday night we saw Fernando Tatis Jr. and Luis uh, uh Robert both hit absolute missiles they each homer twice oh and Juan Soto hit his third homer already this year of more than 445 feet on Sunday we had the White Sox hit four home runs in a row Yohan Moncada Yasmani Grandel Jose Abreu and Eloy Jimenez, four straight homers. And then on Saturday, you had Shane Bieber um, strikeout. I forget how many it was, but he had now has 54 strikeouts through his first five starts of the season, which is behind only Nolan Ryan, Pedro Martinez, and Randy Johnson for most strikeouts through um, five starts in a season. The level of play right now and what's going on, especially when you consider all these circumstances, is incredible. The players we can watch on the field right now I'm constantly in awe of the stuff that they can do. Like there was a play that Javi Baez made deep in, deep in the hole uh, at shortstop the other day for the Cubs. It was the kind of play that like, you know, when we were kids, it was like, you know, the only player who could do that was Ozzie Smith. And now we have like, you know, players doing it. You know, I saw David Fletcher and Jose uh, uh, Baez do that play like in the last like four days. It's a weird year. It's not exactly what we had planned, but the action on the field right now is incredible. There are only six weeks left in the regular season. And then October, we really need to savor it. There you have it, folks. Matt Myers thinks baseball is good. <laughs> the hottest yeah, not of just, all not just feels um, Our colleague Sarah Langs is strict, but baseball is awesome. 
Baseball is awesome. I, I should mention real quick that neither of us are going to rant about the Fernando Tatis 3-0 home run because it's so stupid and it's not even worth the oxygen. Obviously, it's extremely cool to see a grand slam and everybody should try to hit one uh, at any possible point they can. Here's my rant. This is maybe a little bit of a tame one, but it's a, a topic I've focused on over the years. So Nicholas Castellanos, or I guess he's Nick again, I can't remember, is off to a very, very good start for the Reds. Uh, On-base percentage of 353, slugging over 680, uh, he's been really great. He's been fantastic. Although he's been slumping a little bit over the last week where he's got a 214 on base percentage. But anyway, good on him. He's been really good. I have seen a couple of fans tweeting that the reason he's been good is because he has gone to a good hitter's park. And that's that's true in that Cincinnati is a very favorable hitter's park. And people think that Comerica is this giant pitcher's park in part because he was very vocal about how much he absolutely hated hitting there. And I want to disagree with that because I think it may be a, it takes a little bit away from it's not the park. Like he's a good hitter who's hitting very well, but the reds actually played several games in Comerica this year. And if you were to look at the ballpark splits um, in Cincinnati, he's been very good, right? Uh, um, OPS of 1,106 in, I get it three games, but still in Comerica, two homers, four hits, an on-base percentage of 455 and a slugging of over 1,100. So he went to Detroit and he crushed the ball. He actually performed better there than he has in any other park. I don't want to hear that he is good because he's in this new hitter's park. He's a good hitter and he hit well in Comerica, which again is a better hitter's park than people think it is. The Tigers have baseball's best hard hit rate. How's that for a rant? Good one. I like it. Thank you. That's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thank you to Emily Walden and thank you for listening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.